Okay, well, let us, um, let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, um, we just come before you now, and, and I ask that, uh, that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would just open up our minds now. So we've come and we've, um, we just want to hear your word, Lord. We want to hear you speak, and so make your word alive today, Lord, so that we may uh, live for you. George, you had the uh, slides. Um, okay, while he's getting that together, uh, the title of today's sermon is The Goal of a Former Thief. Okay, and I'm doing something that I've actually never really done before. I'm just going to um, speak on one verse today. Uh, this is, this is a kind of a dense verse, though, so um, hopefully it'll work out. But it's actually found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Okay, it says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands, that which is good. That's from the NASB. And we're just going to stop there for right now because we're going to look at this verse piece by piece. Okay? And so let's look at the first part of this verse. It says, He who steals must steal no longer. Now, by a show of hands, how many of us have ever stolen anything? Right? Okay, how many of us can remember stealing something like before when you were like really young, before the age of 10, like maybe even 5 or 4, or, you know, maybe, yeah, right? I know that's me. And I've always found it amazing how early we learn how to steal. You know, it's like kids will just take whatever they want without thinking anything of it. And no parent has ever had to teach their kid how to steal. It's always the other way around, right? And you say, oh, Mark, you know, come on, they're just kids, they don't really know any better. And that's kind of my point. You know, we don't know any better. We are born with this natural inclination to take what isn't ours. And while part of that mentality is from a necessary selfishness of being born a baby who can't take care of themselves, um, I think it's also kind of a testimony for the fact that we are born with a sin nature. We are born with a propensity to sin. We are born in opposition to God. Paul puts it this way in the book of Colossians. He says that we are born hostile in our minds towards God. And that's not nearly an indifference towards him. That's an active and offensive position that we are born with against him. And it compels us to steal, among other things. So we are born with this inclination to steal, but through our upbringing, um, hopefully we are told that stealing is wrong, and, um, and that we'll have to pay the consequences if we do it. And after that life lesson, stealing, stealing isn't really high on our sin radar, right? I think that's because we look at stealing in a very black and white way. You're either doing it or you're not. You know, it's not like envy or lust or anger, jealousy, these things that can kind of build up in your heart and fester, and it's more of like an internal sin, you know, position that we have where it, it, it can kind of build. It's like, no, you're either doing it or you're not. And with security cameras and barcodes on products and forensic evidence and all these other things, it's made it very difficult for us to actually steal anything tangible. But this entire verse is in the context of our vocation and what we do and how people at that time 
made a living. Theft was a common practice in those days. And you know, that's one of the reasons why tax collectors were so hated. Not only were they kind of traitors to their own people, but it was, it was known that they were taken a little bit off the top for themselves of what they would, uh, what they would collect. And Judas Iscariot, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, he was the keeper of the money bag among the disciples. And it's said that he was taking money out for himself. You know, he himself was a thief. So some people's whole way of life revolved around stealing from others to provide for themselves. And here Paul is blatantly just saying that they need to stop doing that. Okay? And I think one thing to remember when we read this is that Paul isn't writing this to a bunch of you know, heathen Gentiles who don't know any better, but he's writing this to a church. Right? This is a church in Ephesus. And the way it's worded isn't an, an announcement like the Ten Commandments, you know, like thou shalt not steal kind of thing. It's, it's more of a very personal and, and a, um, it's like he's saying, those of you who are here in this church, those, you followers of Christ who are stealing, you need to stop this. You need to stop it now. So let me share something with you that I found pretty interesting. Now, according to statistics that were taken from the Global Retail Theft Barometer, which is a thing, employee theft accounts, employee theft accounts for about 43% of lost revenue and costs retailers about $42 billion a year. Now, when I think of stealing, I typically think of the more... Um, I guess just the more blatant types of theft, right? It's like you take an apple from the market, we'll cut off your hand, right? You know, like in Aladdin, I don't know. But that's what I always thought of. It's just, it's just the blatant things. You take it off the shelf and that's stealing. But I think that there's a much more tempting and a much more common type of theft that contributes to this statistic. And that's because there are, these numbers don't just take into account tangible items stolen, but stolen time as well. So let me just put it in perspective for you a little bit. Say that every day you spend 10 minutes of your day not working. Right? You're not on your break. You're, not, you're just, for whatever reason, you stop, you look at your phone, you're browsing the internet, you're answering personal emails, you're, you know, or you just stop working because it's just like, well, I just don't want to. I worked with someone like that. They didn't, they, I don't work with them anymore. <laughs> Anyways, but... You know, or, or you're consistently a little bit late or, a li or you leave a little bit early because um, you know, your boss isn't there, so why not? If you add up those 10 minutes every single day in a year's time, that accounts for 43 hours of paid time off. That's a work's worth of PTO, and in case you were wondering, I am not including weekends in that. I didn't take that and multiply it by you know, 365. I'm, I'm accounting for just a five-day work week. And I understand that that's an extreme, you know, and some employers don't really mind if you chit-chat while you're working or, you know, you take a little break and, and just because you can actually work better that way. But I'm not really talking about that. I'm talking about the times where you're working and you're kind of looking over your shoulder to see if your manager, your boss, or whoever is going to be walking behind you because you know that what you're doing, you're not really supposed to. You may say, you know, come on, Mark, it's not that big of a deal. Right? Stealing five minutes here and there isn't the same thing as stealing a car, right? In the same way, telling a white lie is not the same thing as telling any other lie. In the same way, 
harboring hate against my neighbor is not the same thing as murdering him. Or in the same way, looking at a woman lustfully is not the same way as committing adultery with her. And I can say with confidence that, I, that God does not share that same point of view. And yes, from an earthly perspective, stealing a car is not the same thing as stealing a piece of gum or five minutes here and there, but it all grows from the same root. We can grow apathetic to this sin that I think we are much more guilty of than we care to admit. And that's me included. You know, perhaps we felt conviction and shame the first time we did it, but conviction, when not paired with action, only leads to apathy. Shame, when not followed by repentance, only leads to a numbness to that conviction and a not caring about that anymore. And that is a far more dangerous mentality than any other for a Christian to have. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. We've heard this truth so we can't grow numb to its conviction. Christians should be the most sought after employees in the workforce. You know, I'd imagine that if, if we worked as honestly and as ethically as we should, you know, employers would probably be breaking the law left and right, being like, hey, you one of them Christians. Probably wouldn't say it like that, but whatever. It's like under the table, you know. Because they know that we wouldn't steal, right? We wouldn't slack, and we could be trusted. And this view on theft isn't just to be internalized by employees, but employers as well. Some employers may overwork their employees while undercompensating them or abuse the company earnings in some way. And taking this out of the business realm and in a more personal level, all of us pay taxes. You know, how are we, are we being as honest as we could be every time? And if that isn't enough to convince you that this should be taken seriously, Paul also speaks to our work ethic in Colossians 3.23. He says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. He is essentially saying that we should work for our earthly bosses as if we are working directly for God himself. Because we are. Every work we do, no matter how mundane or seemingly insignificant, can and should be done as unto the Lord. So in that sense, when you are making these little thefts of time or or resources, or money, or whatever, you're not only stealing from your business and your employers, but you're stealing from God himself. Now, how many of you would be so bold as to go back there to those two boxes, reach in, and take a little bit of the tithes and offerings, other than Clyde? <laughs> That's because he's our accountant, not because he's... Let me clarify that. Sorry, Clyde. I've already given you a hard time this morning, but whatever. I'm just saying the opportunity and the temptation to sin in this way is a lot more apparent than many of us tend to think, I think. And it should be taken seriously. Okay, so those who steal should steal no longer. Next. All right, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. So it only makes sense now that when these Ephesians are told not to do something, Paul then instructs them what then to do instead. Okay, 
Remember that some of these people have probably spent their whole lives providing for themselves by stealing in some way. You know, and they may not, they may think that they can't get by without it. If they stopped stealing, they wouldn't know what to do. So Paul tells them to go and labor or get an honest job. And that's fair enough, but I think we can lose some of the meaning behind this if we don't understand the context behind Paul saying, performing with his own hands. Now, in those days, people of status would have looked down on anyone who made a living with their hands. You know, anything like in this way, kind of like trade work. It, they would have thought that this type of work was completely below them and only you know, insignificant, undesirable people would have such low positions. And only, the, only they would have these kinds of jobs. And, and this must have greatly contributed to how much the Pharisees hated Jesus, the carpenter. Right? How dare this woodworker say that he can forgive sins? When Jesus was in his hometown teaching and performing miracles, the people said, it's in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Is this not Mary's son, the carpenter? And they took offense at him. This was not a way to identify Jesus as much as it was a backhanded description of him. So is Paul saying here that we should all go get low position jobs and not, you know, be high in social status and, you know, try to just make minimum wage and that's it? No. It is, it's more of him imploring those who steal to do whatever it takes to get out of that sinful lifestyle. Even if it means taking a less lucrative form of vocation. Sure, you may make less than you do now stealing. Your standard of living may have to go down because of your choice. But you would be honest and you'd be obedient to God. And note that he isn't just simply telling them to work, but to do a good work. They're to find a job that provides and this service it provides a service to their society. He wants them to ask, what can I do to provide good to others? Is what I do helping others, or is it hurting them? Is it leading others to sin, or is it leading them to life? I would encourage you to ask the same question. Is what you're doing leading others to sin? Do you provide stumbling blocks that hinders a person's relationship with, your, with God? Let me share with you the true story of Katie. Now, Katie was a dancer at a nightclub until a woman who performed a weekly outreach to this nightclub consistently came and reached out and eventually led Katie to Christ. And, um, and that's where this story picks up here. And yes, this book is called How to Pick Up a Stripper. If you have a problem, tell someone who cares. I'm just kidding. If you do have a problem, come and tell me. It's, it's actually a really good book. But it says, a couple of days later, Aaron, now Aaron is the woman who would go out and perform the outreach to this um, nightclub. It says, a couple of days later, Aaron was preparing for another visit to the strip club. She called Katie to ask whether she'd be there to work that night. Katie told her that she had realized that this job wasn't a part of God's plan for her life. She had already quit the lucrative job, even though she now wasn't sure how she would be able to pay the bills. She said she was trusting God to take care of her and that she was, quote, ready to feel beautiful again, end quote. 
This girl had been a Christian for two days and was already taking steps of faith bigger than some churchgoers take in their entire lives. We immediately got a, we being the, the woman and, and her husband, got, immediately got a human resources rep in our church involved and helped her to get connected to a new job. It wasn't a great job, but it would pay the bills for now. And Aaron and Katie's friendship continued to grow, and Aaron quickly became not just a friend to Katie, but a mentor. Katie continued taking steps, growing in her faith, and God was showing up in her life in remarkable ways. And after she had been following Christ for a couple of months, she started dating a new guy. Aaron recognized it was time to invite her to take another step. She said, I don't know whether anyone has told you this, but God's plan for you is to not have sex again until you're married. It's the best investment you can make in your future marriage, and it is in, your, in the best interest of you and your kids. God isn't trying to prevent you from enjoying life. He gives you that boundary because he loves you. And Katie said, I have never dated anyone more than three weeks without sleeping with him. It's hard to imagine saving myself from now until I'm married. And she shared how past events had left her feeling like damaged goods. And she wasn't even sure she was worth saving herself from marriage. And what she said next was so beautiful that it still brings tears to my eyes. She decided, I've trusted God and already seen him show up in so many ways. How could I not trust him in this? I'm all in. A couple of months later, Katie, and, Katie told Aaron, I've been thinking most of my clothes I wear really aren't very appropriate. I thought about donating them to Goodwill for a tax deduction, but then I realized that that would just mean someone else would be wearing them. So I'm going to just burn them. That wasn't an issue anyone had mentioned or specifically pointed out. She had simply realized on her own that this was the next step in her journey of becoming more Christ-like, and she took it. Now, I could have stopped reading that testimony after the you know, first paragraph about her job, but that story is just really too cool to just stop right there. You, know, you really see the transformation that happens in this woman's life. And, and her obedience led to a complete change in her life over just a couple months. Did she have a job lined up after she quit? Nope. But she realized that her profession was not life-giving. It, wasn't, it was leading others to sin. It wasn't a good work, as Paul would say. She even realized that the clothes she wore were not beneficial to anyone and had them burned. Make sure that the work that we are doing is a good work. All right, so those who steal should steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands that which is good, so that. All right, now we'll stop right there again. A little How to Read Your Bible 101. Anytime you see the word so that, therefore, because of this, for this reason, anything like that, you should stop. Because that implies that what came before this conjunction directly impacts how you understand what comes after. Okay, now my wife has never walked into our house and said, therefore, you will be sleeping on the couch tonight. <laughs> All right. My immediate reaction would be like, but why? You know, what, <laughs> what led you to that conclusion? What came before the therefore? You know, like, yes, Mark, we know what so that means. Just shut up and move on. But I want to stop here because what comes after this has huge implications 
as to how we are to live our lives as believers. He should labor doing a good work with his hands so that he will have something to share with one who has need. In one sentence, Paul tells those in this church who are stealing that they should go get a job so that they will have something to share with one who has need. Paul is reminding the church in Ephesus of the lifestyle and mentality that they are supposed to have as Christians is to be thinking of others and not themselves. Notice that he doesn't say do a good work so that you can provide for yourselves. Right? That would be appropriate. Or so that you can provide for your family. Makes sense. Or so that you can afford that lifestyle that you want. He doesn't say any of that. He intentionally reminds them not to forget that their duty as Christians here on earth is to serve. Work so that you will have something to give. And of course you should work to provide for yourself and for your family. But Paul raises the bar here and he turns their focus back to say that the goal of their work is maybe not what they thought it was. This self-sacrificial lifestyle should permeate every aspect of our lives, even to the point that our goal of our vocation, the goal of why we go to work, is not only so that we can provide for ourselves and our family, but so that we will have something to give to others. And not just others, but those in need, right? So let's look at how our mind works here when it comes to our income. All right, what, how does our... What are our goals when we work, typically? I'd imagine that our first thought behind our end goal of why we work is to provide for ourselves and for our family. Fair enough. Okay? And then, maybe, we remember the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and that's providing for your government, that's paying your taxes, that's just being a good citizen. So render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and then render unto God what is God's. And that's talking about your church body, that's talking about giving to God, that's tithing. And most of us think, I will, I'll stop there. You know, I'm happy with that. We've reached our goal. We've covered all of our bases as a good Christian and or member of society. We are satisfied, the government is satisfied, God is satisfied. And whatever surplus that we have is ours to do with what we please. We can now go on that yearly vacation we've always looked forward to. Or we can get that new game system we want. Or we can get that car or go get our nails done or go to that restaurant we've been wanting to try. Paul would say that we are fools to think that these three categories are the only fixed expenses we need to worry about before we can spend the rest of our income. He would say that that surplus that you have is first and foremost to be used to help those that you know in need. And whether it is a literal sum of money that you set aside every paycheck to be used in this way, or more of just a, a lifestyle of generosity that, be just, that becomes a natural overflow of your Christ-likeness and of your Christian love, the point remains that a benevolence fund should be a fixed expense along with these three in a Christian's life. But isn't that why I tithe? Right? Isn't that the church's job? No. Not according to this verse. 
Yes, you should tithe, and yes, the church helps those in need, but the church institution as a whole will more affect the homeless community where you live, not necessarily that one person that you personally know who's struggling to make ends meet. But you said yourself that Paul is writing this to a church congregation. And I would say, look at the wording again. Paul says, he who steals, that person right there, that specific person, he needs to make a living so that he himself will be able to personally give to those in his life who has need. Because that is how a Christian is supposed to live, and that is how the power of God works in a person's life. Only God can take a thief who lies and steals and cheats from a people that he doesn't know or care about and change him in such a way that He not only goes to get an honest job, but he goes to that job saying, God, help me do a good work today so that I can not only provide for myself and for my family, but I will be able to have a surplus to give back to these people. No amount of positive thinking or self-help counseling or prosperity gospel nonsense is going to change a person in that way. Only the Holy Spirit living within those who follow Jesus Christ will do that. How else, can you ex- how else can you explain such a bold challenge to these people? Wrapped up in just one sentence. To go from speaking to a deceitful thief at the beginning and speaking to that same person by the end of the sentence and saying, go out and live for others. Those people who you were stealing from, you need to work honestly so that you can go and give back to them. This challenge is pointless and it's laughable if it isn't for the great redemptive and transformative power of a loving God that would enable a person to make such a change. And I would even go so far to say that if you are a Christian and you are able to provide for yourself and your family and the government and for God, but you say that you cannot bless others in need, then perhaps you need to reevaluate your standard of comfort. And no, I do not mean standard of living. Because, listen, if you truly are barely able to make ends meet yourself, and you can barely put food on the table, then yes, of course, you need to take care of yourself and your family first. Your family is your first ministry. And it's the most important. And if that is you, then don't neglect, you know, that or them for the sake of giving to others, but don't lose sight of this goal that Paul sets for us either. But I would assume that if most of us took a look at our income, we would find that our money goes much more quickly and much more abundantly towards our standard of comfort rather than our neighbor in need. And that may sound drastic to some, but God doesn't call us to live fun, easy, and comfortable lives. Some of us get that. Some of us have it, and that's great, but some of us don't. And either way, my comfort zone should not dictate how I live my life. The truth in this book should. We should not obey God because it's always fun and comfortable, and we enjoy doing it. We should do it because the truth is that we were created to be in relationship with him and to please him. And so if doing what he says in Ephesians 4.28 will please him, then I should reorient and reprioritize my life in such a way that I'm able to now do this. 
teaching. Yes, it, it may not be as fun to live this way, but God does not promise fun. He promises joy. All right? He does not promise comfort and easy. He promises peace despite the difficulty. And he does not promise a life free of pain and suffering. He promises life from death and forgiveness of sins. And I will not promise that living this way will provide very much for you. But I will promise you that this book contains truth, and it's the truth of God. So let us never find ourselves asking, what will this book provide for me? But let's ask, is this true? And then act accordingly. Now I want to finish today with just a story that Jesus tells in the book of Luke about that, that I think shows this mentality that, um, that Paul's been uh, speaking about today. And it's Luke chapter 10, and uh, it's, Jesus tells the story of a Samaritan who helps a Jewish person. Who is, um, this, this Jewish man was walk, walking along the road, and, and some people come up, and they beat him nearly half to death. And, um, and he's been robbed and, and beaten, but a traveling Samaritan man comes and takes pity on him and helps him. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 10, verse 33. It says, But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put, and he put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So I want to look at just a couple points here, and then I'll close. And the first one is that the Samaritan came to this man in need. Okay, he noticed him. He was walking along the road. He noticed him. He felt compassion, and then he came up to him. Okay? And Paul tells us to work so that we can give to one who is in need. And that word one is literally translated the one. It's specific. It's, it's singular. Okay? It means one person. Not every single person that you see in need, but the one specific person that you know who that, that you can be intentional with. You know, some of y'all just had a name pop up in your mind. That's the person. So the question we should be asking ourselves is, who is it that you know who is in need? Who's that one person? Do you even know anyone who is in need? Are you having these intentional discussions? Are you asking these kinds of questions? Are you taking that interest in people's lives to a point where you know, yeah, this person's struggling right now? Whatever, for whatever circumstances, whether it be their own, you know, their own doing, or, or just life's just hit them hard right now. Are you having those conversations with your friends and coworkers, especially the ones who don't know Christ? So who have you come upon as this Samaritan did? Because Ephesians 4.28 is speaking kind of off of the assumption that we know of these hurts and that we know these people who are in need. The second thing is that the Samaritan took time to help this man. It's not like he was heading to the inn, you know, going down the road and was like, hey, you're half dead and I'm just going to be passing by this inn. Why don't you just hop on my donkey and I'll, I'll take you there. It's no problem. I'm on, you know. It's on my route. No, it was inconvenient. 
We know this because he tells the innkeeper that he's going to leave and then come back. He had an intention for going on that road. He's going to leave, go finish what he set out to do, and then he's going to come back and reimburse the innkeeper. Now, I want to be careful with this point because what we've been talking about in Ephesians is, I don't want to take it completely out of context because that verse we've been talking about is speaking about money. All right, it's not necessarily speaking about time. So I don't want to just take it completely out of context, but so often time and money go hand in hand. And many of those who are in need are in need of more than just your money, if they need your money at all. They need your time and your attention. You know, personal discipleship is just largely a lost art form in the church for whatever reason, and that is a practice that requires a lot of time and not necessarily your money. And many of those who are in need, discipleship would be a lot more beneficial to them than, you know, just a a check to get them out of whatever uh, bind they're in. But if you're willing to sacrifice the time. So it is somewhat of a side point, a satellite point, but it needs to be made nonetheless. And so thirdly is the most obvious point, and that is that the Samaritan spent his own money to help this man. This goes back to the point about taking a personal interest into helping those in need and not leaving it up to some organization or to your local church. The amount the Samaritan spent on this man was not chump change. All right, two denarii was equivalent to two days' pay. So that's a couple hundred or a few hundred dollars. The Samaritan had the money to help this man, and he wasn't just mildly generous, but he was abundantly generous. And to close this story of the Samaritan, Jesus is telling it, and, and he's asked a question. And to, so he tells this story, and to close, he says, go and do the same. Go and behave like this Samaritan. All right, go do what he did. And you, do you know what prompted Jesus to tell this story? You know, you'd, you'd think it would be something along the lines of like, you know, how much should I give? How generous should I be or anything? No, it was, who is my neighbor? Isn't that funny? You know, Jesus could have been like, everyone. Everyone's your neighbor. Go help everyone. Love them. It's all good. But instead, he goes into this, this description of an unnatural generosity and love towards humanity and tells this man who asked to go and do likewise. He kind of ignores the question and redirects the topic back towards helping others, back towards this mentality that Jesus himself took on and and tells us that we need to take on as well. He's highlighting the importance of living for others in the same way that Paul doesn't just tell the church to go, or those who are in the church who are stealing, to go get an honest job, but he redirects the goal of their work to be for others. to enable them to bless others, to enable God or to allow God to bless others through them. So what is the goal of a former thief? What is the goal of the thief whom God has redeemed? It is to work, performing a, to labor, performing a good work with his hands so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let us have that same goal. Amen?
Alright. Uh, would those who are re released to pray please come up? Now, God is pretty, he has pretty blunt wording when it comes to thieves and stealing. And, I, and it's, not, it's not because the act of stealing is so egregious. You know, it's not because it's so egregious in nature, but because stealing is all about insecurity. And it's all about a lack of trust in our God. All right, that's the root that it kind of comes out of. And our salvation hinges upon the faith and trust that God will supply us with what we need for that salvation. And before we can ever trust him to empower us to get to the point where the goal of our work can actually be to earn a surplus that we could give to others, we must first look to him to free us from the condemnation and the power of sin that we are born into that compels us to live opposite. And if you've never really known him, if you've never trusted your life to him in such a way, and you've trusted in that the blood that he shed was payment for the sins and, and his forgiveness forever, then I encourage you to come up to either myself or anybody who's standing up here and, and receive a prayer for that. 